Soviet Anti-Semitism, The Big Lie, by Moses Miller, published by Jewish Life. Drums are beating, and women are wailing. The primitive tribe of the bars is in trouble. An epidemic of cholera has broken out. Man after man is stricken with the dread disease. Sanitation and medical science are totally lacking. The only cause for pestilence known to the bars is the anger of evil demons, and something must be done to get rid of them. The priests swing into action. They parade the streets chanting prayers in weird minor tunes. Then, the priests cast lots with small white sticks and choose a young water buffalo. They daub it with red paint. The buffalo is driven through the village. The people rush out of their houses carrying lighted torches and making a tremendous din, screaming, beating pans and drums, to frighten the cholera demons into the body of the unfortunate victim. Finally, the terrified animal is pelted with sticks and stones, driven into the jungle, and never allowed to return. The village plunges into an orgy of rejoicing, convinced that the plague has been carried bodily away. Kenneth Gold When we read stories like this, we usually smile and think how naive and uncivilized the primitive tribal life was. We quote-unquote civilized people wouldn't fall for stuff like that, would we? Don't we? The story that follows in these pages will serve to wipe out any notions of our modern superiority. It is the story of one of the dirtiest hoaxes ever perpetrated. The incantations of ancient sorcerers had a purpose, to drive out evil spirits. The job of the modern votaries of Wall Street's imperialism is to destroy reason and sanity, to divide people from one another, and to create hobgoblins to divert their attention from the real enemy. This is the story of the latest and foulest of the big lies to be spewed forth by the hate and venom-distorted minds. It is the story of the malicious campaigns to poison men's minds with the absurd notion that the Soviet Union, which outlawed anti-Semitism and race hatred on the very day it took power, has now embarked on an official anti-Semitic campaign. The purpose of this vicious campaign is to prepare men's minds to accept the Cold War and to add to the confusion, fear, and distrust necessary to fan the flames of a talking war into the actual shooting war that Wall Street wants. To gain these ends, the Jewish masses, above all, must be lured away from the respect and sympathy they have come to feel for the Soviet Union because of its consistent struggle against racism and anti-Semitism over the years, and, more recently, because of its magnificent role in the fight for the creation and maintenance of a free and independent Israel. This is not a new campaign. It has been used every time the world situation became critical and every time relations between the major powers became strained. That the large portion of the American press jumped wholeheartedly into the mess, distorting facts, lying about sources, reprinting fabrications in spite of and after being forced to print repudiations of their own stories, is not new either. More shocking, however, is the fact that a number of Jewish organizations 
consciously aiding the press and even originating their own slander is also not new. This is the lie. Let's take this big lie apart and see of what it is made. It turned up first in Newsweek on April 4th. Quote, A widespread official and anti-Semitic campaign clearly emerged for the first time last week as one of the chief reasons for the current Soviet cultural offensive against Western decadence and cosmopolitanism. A campaign to eliminate Jewish intellectuals from cultural life is now underway in the Soviet Union, end quote. Newsweek went on to prove its contention by showing that a number of Jewish intellectuals had been attacked in the campaign against cosmopolitanism, adding, quote, where the Jewish origin of the accused is obscured by an adopted Russian name, the original Jewish name is quoted by the Soviet press in parentheses. This is unprecedented in a country where anti-Semitism is a criminal offense, end quote. Newsweek had a field day, citing names outside and inside parentheses and the criticisms made of those named. Nor did the writer forget to take into account the incredibility of the charge of anti-Semitism being leveled at the Soviet Union. Undaunted by the obvious contradiction with the first paragraph of his story, he added, quote, Western observers in Moscow hesitate to assume that the present campaign is deliberately designed to arouse this latent anti-Semitism, but they feel it may be intended as a stern warning that only by strict adherence to the precepts of the Soviet state can the Jew hope to survive, end quote. So, from a widespread official anti-Semitic campaign in the beginning of the article, the matter became a stern warning at the end. The pack starts. The first to climb on the bandwagon was the New York Post, that great liberal newspaper from which editor T.O. Thackeray was forced to resign recently because he dared disapprove of America's foreign policy. On April 6th, George Fielding Elliott wept bitterly over the quote, deadly peril, end quote, of the Jews in Eastern Europe. Once more, mourned Elliott, the handwriting appears on the wall, the ancient, terrible wall stained with Jewish blood through the centuries, end quote. On May 3rd, the Post got permission to reprint the Newsweek article in full. The New York Times joined the pack next, as certain Harry Schwartz broke out with stories that anti-Semitism was appearing on the Soviet Union and that the anti-Zionist stand of the Soviet Union was one aspect of this anti-Semitic campaign. On April 20th, Schwartz wrote, quote, Meanwhile, observers of the Soviet press had noted that the cartoon campaign against cosmopolitanism and crocodile, the lavishly illustrated Soviet humor publication, has been marked by the use of hooked noses on the figures used to represent cosmopolitanism. One cartoon on the front page of Crocodile juxtaposes the name Lipman, which is usually Jewish in the Soviet Union, with the word Zid, a derisive Russian term for Jews used by Russian-speaking anti-Semites, end quote. Who fired the opening gun on this campaign of slander? On April 1st, 1949, the Library of Jewish Information of the American Jewish Committee issued a document called, quote, Jews Behind the Iron Curtain, end quote. This document, produced by the Organization of America's Wealthiest Jews, was supposed to be the final word and up to the minute proof that anti-Semitism is now an official weapon of the Soviet Union and the new democracies. 
From the way in which the material of this document has been used, it is evident that if the American Jewish Committee did not actually help initiate this disgusting and dangerous campaign, it has certainly done all it can to keep it going. Frederick Waltman, starting a scurrilous series in the World Telegram on May 16th, wrote, quote, This incredible development in a nation where discrimination is supposed to be a state crime was established in a survey by the World Telegram, based chiefly on Jewish sources. One of them, the American Jewish Committee, terms the campaign against Soviet Jews both violent and official, unquote. Throughout his series, Waltman refers constantly to statements made by the American Jewish Committee, either in the document above or in the Committee Reporter. Case of the Herald Tribune Evidence that another Jewish organization is involved in this psychopathic slander campaign came to light in a very interesting manner. A few months back at their convention in Atlantic City, the Jewish Labor Committee, an organization of Jewish Social Democrats, made a big play for the front pages by unearthing a supposedly documented study of the persecution of Jews in the Iron Curtain countries. This would have gotten scant notice if Keith Spaulding on the night desk for the Herald Tribune news service had not made a slight mistake. Mr. Spaulding addressed a letter to the American Jewish Labor Council, the organization of progressive Jewish labor leaders, which he really intended to address to the Jewish Labor Committee. In this letter, he wrote as follows, quote, Gentlemen, I should very much like to obtain a copy of the report by your organization some months ago in Atlantic City, detailing evidences of anti-Semitism in the Soviet sphere. It has come to my attention that your organization is in a position to have valid sources of information on this very important matter. May I, although belatedly, congratulate you on bringing it to the attention of the public Sincerely, Keith Spaulding, Night Desk, Herald Tribune, News Service, end quote. William Levner, Public Relations Director of the American Jewish Labor Council, released the contents of this letter to the press, together with a short documented study of Jewish life in the East European countries, with this comment, quote, It is apparent from the reference made to the report made in Atlantic City that this communication was intended for the Jewish Labor Committee. The Herald Tribune News Service has, of course, every right to request copies of reports and other pertinent information. The contents of this request, however, prejudged the validity of the information desired, and the congratulations was extended to the Jewish Labor Committee go beyond the limit of objectivity and professional ethics to which your news service lays claim. End quote. The Jewish Forward, the Jewish Morning Journal, and the Jewish Day leaped into the campaign, competing hysterically to see who could print more shrieking headlines and bigger and better fabrications. Nor did the right-wing conservative Yiddish press confine itself to reprinting what had appeared in the English press. They added their own concoctions. According to these newspapers, not only was there anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union, but leading Jewish writers like Itzik Pfeffer, David Bergelson, and a host of others had already been purged, were either dead or dying, had been sent to Siberia, had disappeared, and so on and so on ad nauseum. So blatant was the note of glee in the Jewish press that one noted Jewish journalist, William Zuckerman, was led to comment on these antics in an article entitled, quote, A Case for Psychopathology, 
in which he pointed out that to rush to reprint jubilantly such falsifications and rejoice in the discovery that another sixth of the world which has outlawed anti-Semitism has turned anti-Semitic seems to be a case for psychopathology. Later, we shall return to these Jewish organizations and newspapers and their great happiness in having discovered anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union. Now, let us nail some of the lies that were spread as the gospel truth and held up as absolute proof of official anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union. The Vid Lie The crocodile cartoon, which the New York Times asserted is anti-Semitic, is reproduced here. An arrow points to the word supposed to have been a slur upon Jews. With no knowledge of Russian, but eyes with which to see, one can see that there are two words, not one. And it turns out that the two words are André Gide, the name of the French novelist. It also turns out that, when transliterated into Russian, Gide would appear as Did. In fact, the cartoon turns out to be a caricature of widely known intellectuals who are preaching a philosophy called cosmopolitanism. Named in the cartoon are André Malroux, Jean-Paul Sartre, Somerset Maugham, D.W. Griffith, and Littmann, obviously Walter Littmann. Of these, only one is Jewish. Once attention had been focused on the truth, the Times was forced to print a grudging retraction. Of course, the retraction was a short, buried item in the back of the paper, and made no mention of Harry Schwartz, the author of the original lie. Is it possible that the Great Times was concerned lest future contributions from the nimble brain of Mr. Schwartz might be discredited? That new champion of the Jewish cause, Newsweek, was not to be outdone. On May 2nd, it declared, quote, Even anti-communists found it hard to believe the first reports that the Soviet Union had deliberately launched a large-scale and officially inspired campaign of anti-Semitism, end quote. Printed the same cartoon which the Times had been forced to repudiate, and for good measure a few more cartoons which depict the cosmopolitans as birds with long beaks. After all, Beaks are long noses, and long noses mean Jews, so there you have it. Curiously enough, added Newsweek, the cartoons were drawn by a Jew, the well-known artist Boris Yefimov. Freddie Woltman made his own original contribution to the crocodile matter. Figuring that some people might have read the Times' repudiation, Woltman came up with this one. True. The quote, tag posted on his suitcase read André Gide. This presumably referred to André Gide, the French writer, who is unpublished and virtually unknown in Russia. However, the André was shaded, and the vid caught the eye, end quote. The cartoon as it is reproduced here is from Crocodile, and exactly as it appeared originally there. There is no shading of the word André. We would not want to go on record as saying that Freddie Woltman is above creating things out of his own mind when it serves his purpose, but, in this case, in the interest of honesty, we have to admit he had a source. We present here a photostatic copy of the Newsweek version of the cartoon from Crocodile. 
Gear is a shining example of the uses to which America's widely heralded freedom of the press is put. The Crocodile cartoon was by no means enough for the New York Times, Newsweek, the New York Post, and the World Telegram. The big lie needed more substance, and this they added by a tremendous howl about Jewish names appearing in parentheses. According to Harry Schwartz in the New York Times, quote, this is unprecedented, end quote, and happens to no one else in the Soviet press. Yet, we have been able to reproduce here part of the April 10th issue of Pravda, and have underlined instances where Stalin Prize winners are identified by their pseudonyms, and their real names are printed in parentheses. Thus, you will find among the fiction writers, Boris Nikolaevich Polovoy, in parentheses Kampov, Elizaria Yerovich Maltsev, in parentheses Pupko, Anna Atovna Saksa, in parentheses Absalom, among the poets, Mikola Bazan, in parentheses Nikolai Platonovich, Rahim Mamed, in parentheses Mamed Rahim Abbas Olga Gusanov, Yakub Kolis, in parentheses Konstantin Mikhailovich Mitskevich, among the dramatists, Sandro Shanshiashvili, in parentheses Alexander Ilyich, and documentary film worker Roman. Gregorovich Kotsman, in parentheses, Gregoriev. Obviously, most of these names are not Jewish, yet both their real names and pseudonyms are being given, complete with parentheses. A more telling argument is an analysis of the April 9th and 10th Pravda, in which the Stalin Prize winners are listed. People thoroughly familiar with Russian have gone over the lists carefully for us, and have found over 120 obviously Jewish names. Here are only a few of the names that appear in the April 9th list. Lev Benyaminovich Marmerstein, chief engineer of the factory Serp and Hammer. Ephraim Fetlovich Schwartzberg, airplane engineer. Benjamin Bezelovich Gurevich, engineer of the factory Electroapparat. Aaron Isakovich Lieberman, Engineer of Moscow Instrument Factory. Samuel Moisevich Silbergleit, Engineer Constructor of Building Construction. Yuri Aronovich Shapiro, Engineer of the Yaroslav Auto Factory. Yakov Solomonovich Epstein, Engineer. Shlomo Isakovich Amram, Chemist. Gershon Shimonovitz Brodsky and Abraham Samuelovich Feinstein. Plastic Engineers Lieb Davidovich Yaf, Radio Constructor Yisrael Inyevich Wiener, Constructor of New Military Weapons Faced with facts like these, what are the brilliant conclusions drawn by the great and free American press? Here's an example, taken from Newsweek on May 23rd, which purports to be based on a special report received from a quote, Western diplomat who returned from Moscow last week, end quote. Convincing evidence. However, says Newsweek on that date, the drive to eliminate the Jews from literary and artistic activities continues unabated, though without fanfare. 
The recently published list of Stalin Prize winners provides convincing evidence of the nature of the campaign. In literature and art, a field in which Russian Jews have been traditionally active, only 9 of 241 awards were given to Jews. In the field of science, Jews were given 6 out of 36 awards. But the long list of 760 prize winners in industrial and technical development contains as many as 83 obviously Jewish names. This breakdown, coupled with well-substantiated reports that Jews are being gradually eliminated from party propaganda positions, and especially from so-called agitprop units, led Newsweek's informant to conclude that, though Soviet Jews may enjoy opportunities in industrial and technical fields, they will be driven out of art and literature as ruthlessly as they have already been eliminated from positions of influence in national defense and foreign affairs. End quote. Just to show the puerility of the arguments used by Newsweek, it must be remembered that the Jewish people in the Soviet Union constitute about 1% of the population, which means they are exceptionally well represented in all the fields in which the Stalin Prizes were awarded. How Freddy Quotes To show the depths to which these hate campaigners will stoop, it is necessary to show up their technique of distortion. Quotation out of context is one method. On May 20th, Freddy Woltman wrote for his bosses, quote, Probably no better authority could be found attesting to the virtual disappearance of Jewish life itself in the USSR than B.Z. Goldberg, columnist on the day, New York Jewish Daily. Returning after a six-month tour of the USSR, Mr. Goldberg, as far back as August 14, 1946, wrote in the day, quote, There are no Jewish districts in the cities and towns. There are no specifically Jewish occupations. There are no Jewish hospitals, no Jewish old folks' homes, no Jewish clubs, no Jewish parties, no Jewish philanthropies, no Jewish educational institutions, end quote. No comment is needed on this beyond presenting the full article from which Freddie Woltman yanked this one paragraph. Here is what Mr. Goldberg really said in full. Quote, well, what shall I tell you of the life of the Jews in Kiev? We Jews always yearned for one thing, to be equal with all other people, and that there should be no exception made of Jews. This being made an exception was always like a hump on our back, and we wanted to get rid of this. Numbers of Jews who went to Palestine left not so much because of their love for Palestine, but because of their hatred of being different. They didn't want to be different from any other part of the population. Well, here we have an example of an end to this being different. An example of equality. We have an example of where the hump has been taken off our shoulders, and so some feel that their backs are a little cold. There are no special Jewish living quarters or areas. There are no specifically Jewish occupations. There are no Jewish hospitals, no Jewish old folks' homes, no Jewish clubs, no Jewish parties, no Jewish philanthropies. There are no special Jewish educational institutions, even where Jewish education exists, either for example in the Jewish cabinet or in the research institute of the General Academy. 
In such cases, once again, it is not something apart, but an integral part of the General Academy, under the direction of the General Academy and subsidized by the general budget of the country. The only difference is that the language is Yiddish and the theme is Jewish. Other than that, the technique and the mechanics, everything, is a part of the general. Let me try to clear this question up a little more. The Jewish cabinet of the Ukrainian Academy is much bigger than the YIVO in America. In it work many more research people and scholars than in the New York YIVO, and it has a much greater budget, of course, than the YIVO. Surrounding the YIVO, there is a big apparatus to collect funds for the institutions. People are sent out. Meetings are held, not only in the States, but even outside of the States, as in Canada and in Mexico, to raise funds for the YIVO. One finds no such activities going on in connection with the Jewish cabinet. No single Jew is ever approached for any aid for the cabinet. There is not one single person sent out to collect any funds for the cabinet. The directorate of the cabinet works out its budget. And, if the directorate has not gone off too far into the clouds, there is no doubt but that its budget will be accepted and that the only thing that remains is for the check to be written out and that's the end of that. Is it better this way or worse? My opinion is that it is better. Certainly it gives much more assurance of security and is certainly more conducive to dignity. End quote. War record remade. It shouldn't be necessary to point out the difference between what B.Z. Goldberg said and what Freddie Woltman said he said. But distortion is by no means Mr. Woltman's only device. He shows a special genius by finding his quote-unquote authorities. For his May 23rd article, which appeared under the blaring headline, Double-Crossing Russians Left Jews to Mercy of Hitler's Invading Hordes, he had two excellent sources. A Dr. Solomon M. Schwartz, who Woltman says is an authority on current economic and social problems in Russia, and a researcher for leading Jewish organizations, supplied this tidbit. Quote, the Russian people were never told Hitlerism signified the complete extermination of the Jews. End quote. Woltman's other authority was Grigor Aronson a member of the editorial staff of Novoi Rusko Slovo, a Russian-language daily well-known as a White Guard newspaper, which has been calling for the overthrow of the Soviet Union for years. Woltman quotes in his article from, quote, a forthcoming documented pamphlet, end quote, written by Gregor Aronson, in which Aronson states, quote, Stalin and his officials did not worry about the fate of the Jews. They simply forgot about this problem. End quote. It is hard to believe that anyone, whether he agrees with Soviet ideology or not, can have forgotten the glorious role the Soviet Union played in world events in the years since 1939. But, since filthy hands have been laid on the history of those years, maybe it must be recorded once again in black and white. The whole story cannot be told, of course, in this pamphlet. But, in telling some of the story again, it can be shown that the present campaign of lies has been tried before. 
On December 3, 1939, an article appeared in The Nation under the signature of Oswald Garrison Villard and written from The Hague. Quote, One other piece of bad news I must give, wrote Villard. It is widely believed in responsible circles in Germany that part of the bargain with Stalin calls for the application of the Nuremberg Laws to Russian Jews, and that this will be done within six months from the signing of the pact. It is not thought that such laws will actually be put in the statute books. Stalin will simply give certain orders and that will be enough." End quote. Immediately, the Jewish press took up the hue and cry, reprinting Villard's story in the Jewish Daily Forward and the Jewish Morning Journal, which latter even added some choice details made up of fabrications about the spreading of Nazi literature in the Soviet Union. The news columns and editorials of the Jewish Forward in those days give a fine picture of mental gymnastics. For example, writing editorially on February 1, 1940, the Forward carried, quote, There is nothing to envy about the Jews who were saved in those parts of Poland which the Red Army has taken over. According to the reports that managed to get through from those areas, a reign of terror has been instituted which is aimed at the so-called bourgeoisie. The number of such victims is naturally quite large, but even greater are the number of Jewish victims of the economic regime which the Soviet power is instituting there. In this respect, Soviet Poland is probably no different from the rest of the Soviet paradise where the population has not had it too well in the course of the two decades of the Soviet dictatorship." End quote. Truth breaks out. But it seems that, like all of the other Jewish newspapers, the foreword was being deluged with letters from hundreds and hundreds of Jews who had been saved by the Red Army until it couldn't ignore them any longer. On February 4th, the foreword again editorialized with, quote, Many American Jews have lately been receiving letters from their relatives in that part of Poland, which has been taken by the Bolsheviks. The writers of these letters thank God that they have saved themselves from the Nazi hell, and they express great satisfaction at the fact that they now find themselves in a country where they are sure of their lives and are no longer insulted or persecuted as Jews." End quote. While the foreword was engaged in its contortions, reports of what was taking place were pouring in. On February 26, 1940, the Jewish Telegraphic Agency was reporting that, quote, The Soviet government takes into consideration the tragic position of the refugees and gives them the opportunity to move deeper into Russia. Despite that, the number of refugees in western Ukraine does not let up. Thousands of Jewish refugees from Nazi Poland continue to come into Russia. Their number is growing daily, and among them are not only Polish Jews, but Austrian, German, and Czechoslovak Jews as well, who are fleeing from Nazi terror." End quote. There are many stories that could be told of those trying days for the Jews, and of the scandalous slanders made by the American Jewish press against the Soviet Union. One, that of Dr. Joseph Nover, a Polish refugee, will serve. Toward the end of November 1948, 
Dr. Nover grew so incensed by the lies printed in the foreword that he wrote a protesting letter to the foreword, which that paper refused to print. Dr. Nover then sent it to the Morning Freyheit, which printed it on December 12, 1948, and printed an English translation in Jewish Life, February 1949. This is Dr. Nover's letter. Quote, I am driven to write because my conscience is troubled by the forward interview with Shimon Har. I propose to tell the whole story and to fill in the gaps left by Har. At the outset, I want to make clear that I have been a Zionist for almost 30 years. In speech and writing, I have fought against the Soviet Union as an enemy of Zionist ideology. Consequently, no one can accuse me of subjectivity or of being an advocate of the Soviet Union. I write here in the name of justice and human dignity, which require an honest person to present the facts as they actually occurred. Herr Har, did you see the terrifying spectacle of tremendous masses of Jews pouring across the Russian border? Did you not wonder? that the Soviet power should allow countless hordes of Jewish refugees to cross its borders from Poland, that country which for many years carried on open anti-Soviet and anti-communist propaganda. What did you feel, friend Har, when you crossed the Russian border? I shall tell you how we felt. When the Russian border guard gave us the sign to enter, my family and I and friends from our city sobbed and cried and fell upon each other's necks and kissed each other with indescribable joy. Very soon, the Russian militia came up to us and, speaking Yiddish, comforted us and told us to calm ourselves. They assured us that we were out of danger, for we were now under the protection of the Russian power. How new and wonderful for us these expressions of understanding and sympathy by militia and police. When I think what a long journey every one of us refugees had to travel to come to America from the American zone in Germany, it seems impossible to understand how the Soviet Union allowed thousands of refugees over its borders without conditions or obstacles. Among these refugees were varied elements. Among them were anti-communists, and many who were demoralized by the indescribable hardship of their flight. Regardless of my attitude to the Soviet system, have I the right ever to forget that this humanitarian act of the Russians saved my family and myself, as well as the lives of the Har family, and 200,000 other Jews?" End quote. Soviets Save Jews Recently, a book called The Role of the Jews in the Partisan Movement in the Soviet Union, written by Moisha Kaganovich, came to our attention. Kaganovich, together with a number of other Russian partisans eager to go to Palestine, traveled across Europe and ended up in Italy. There, they created their own organization. Part of their purpose was to present just such a historical work as this 402-page book. In the course of the stirring stories of the heroism of the Jews in the partisan movement, 
Gaganovich states, quote, I must stress that the Soviet government and the Soviet partisans were the only ones in this bitter and bloody epic of Jewish life who saved the Jews and made it possible for tens of thousands of Jews, particularly in the western part of white Russia and the Ukraine, to live through the war. The Soviet government was the only one that carried out the decisions of the tragically renowned Bermuda Conference, of the great powers on saving Jews wherever they were found. End quote. Kaganovich quotes in full the historic decree issued by the Supreme Soviet in 1941, giving precedence to, quote, evacuating first of all citizens of the Jewish nationality from those areas where they are endangered by the enemy, end quote. Hundreds of stories of the concern of the Soviet government for the Jews and of the efforts it made to save the Jewish people and protect them from the Nazis have appeared even in magazines and newspapers consistently hostile to the Soviet Union. Yet Freddie Woltman still has the stomach to quote from Gregor Aronson that, quote, Stalin and his officials did not worry about the fate of the Jews. They simply forgot about this problem, end quote. I could find no better way to sum up the role of the Soviet Union with regard to the Jewish people than to quote from a speech of the late James N. Rosenberg, a noted banker and honorary chairman, executive committee, joint distribution committee, and agrojoint. The speech was delivered at an affair in honor of Solomon Michoels and Itzik Pfeffer when they visited the United States in 1943. Mr. Rosenberg stated at the time, quote, to Jews, the word Stalingrad will be immortal. What Jew, or non-Jew for that matter, dares shut his eyes to the menacing poison of anti-Semitism, which has not only murdered two million helpless Jews, but has been the entering wedge with which Hitler has divided peoples and conquered nations? In Russia, that wedge failed him. It failed because Russia has since the October Revolution forbidden discrimination between man and man, Jew and non-Jew. Real equality, regardless of race, religion, or nationality, is a cornerstone of Soviet policy. Here, let the world take note, is the key to the courage, morale, and unity of the Russian people that this humane, wise, and far-seeing Soviet policy is not a mere scrap of paper, that it is the Soviet way of life, I testify from first-hand knowledge. We turn now to the immense Jewish population of white Russia, Ukraine, and Crimea. What happened to them? I quote from the scholarly article by Dr. Jacob Robinson in last April's issue of International Conciliation, the authoritative journal published by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Of some 1,750,000 Jews who succeeded in escaping the Axis since the outbreak of hostilities, about 1,600,000 were evacuated by the Soviet government from eastern Poland and subsequently occupied Soviet territory, and transported far into the Russian interior and beyond the Urals. About 150,000 others managed to reach Palestine, the United States, 
and other countries beyond the seas. On the basis of these data, which I believe to be conservative, Russia has saved over ten times as many Jews from Nazi extermination as all the rest of the world put together. Let that also sink into your minds, my fellow Jews. End quote. Those who are so eager to besmirch the record of the Soviet Union might perhaps compare the previous statement quoted from Mr. Rosenberg with an analysis of the role of our own State Department in those days, as recorded by Henry Morgenthau in Colliers, November 1, 1947. Said Mr. Morgenthau, quote, We know in Washington from August 1942 on that the Nazis were planning to exterminate all the Jews in Europe. Yet for nearly 18 months after the first report of the Nazi horror plan, the State Department did practically nothing. Officials dodged their grim responsibility, procrastinated when concrete rescue schemes were placed before them, and even suppressed information about atrocities in order to prevent an outraged public opinion from forcing their hand. End quote. Soviet Fight Against Racism Those who are not completely consumed by this frenzy of hatred can easily find out for themselves, if they do not know already, the history of the fight of the Soviet Union against racism and anti-Semitism. From the very first days of its existence, the Soviet Union took steps to eradicate anti-Semitism. On July 27, 1919, a special decree was issued against anti-Semitism. In the first years of the Soviet regime, days of bitter struggle and constant battles against invading armies, the Soviet leaders never halted their continuous effort to bring real equality to the Jewish masses, so many of whom had been declassed and had been prevented under the Tsar from living a normal human life. There are few people who foam at the mouth every time they talk about the Soviet Union, as does Jacob Lashinsky, who is regarded in certain circles as a foremost Jewish economist. Yet, in a book of his published in Vilna in 1930, Between Life and Death, even he was forced to report, quote, Anyone who is acquainted with the pogroms in the entire Ukraine must admit that the Red Army saved the Jews of the Ukraine from physical disappearance, that the Red Army did not permit the extermination of 2,500,000 Russian Jews. One of the most outstanding facts which everyone could observe was the following. Jews would evacuate scores of cities and towns together with the Red Army whenever the Bolsheviks had to leave a place, for a few days, or even for a few hours. No matter, the Jews always ran away and followed the Red Army. When the Poles occupied Kiev, the entire Jewish population of the right side of the Dnieper came from Kiev to Cherkas. Entire families, including the elderly people, left their place of residence and all their possessions. People ran away without any idea of returning. At that time, one really could believe that the Bolshevik regime was a Jewish regime. So much time, attention, and energy to the evacuation of Jewish population were given by the Red Army. End quote. It was the Soviet government that wrote Article 123 into its constitution, 
stating, quote, Equality of rights of citizens of the USSR, irrespective of their nationality or race, in all spheres of economic, state, cultural, social, and political life, is an indefeasible law. Any direct or indirect restriction of the rights of, or conversely, any establishment of direct or indirect privileges for citizens on account of their race or nationality, as well as any advocacy of racial or national exclusiveness or hatred and contempt, is punishable by law. End quote. Soviet leaders did not take the question of achieving equality for all peoples lightly. Again and again, they stated that equality could not be achieved through formal declarations and pronouncements. Real equality could be won only by bringing all peoples up to the same economic levels through affording them equal opportunity. That is why one of the first steps undertaken by the Soviet Union was to afford the Jewish people the right to become productive workers, to become farmers, to take part in all the types of activity from which they had been excluded for centuries. That is why Biro Bijan was created, so that those Jews who longed for complete national fulfillment would have the opportunity to find it. There was no compulsion involved. Those who wished to go were permitted to do so, and were aided in every way in their efforts. Those who wished to stay were given every opportunity to become completely free and equal citizens wherever they were. Anyone who has been to the Soviet Union, as well as many here who keep up with Soviet Jewish affairs, can testify to the vast network of Jewish schools and institutions that were and are in existence in the Soviet Union. More Jewish literature and books were published in the Soviet Union than in all of the other countries of the world put together. Quote, missing persons, unquote. At this point, some readers are probably saying to themselves, all this may be true, but what about the reports that are appearing, particularly in the Yiddish press, that some of the leading Jewish Soviet writers, like Itzik Pfeffer and David Bergelson, are missing? Why, some of the newspapers have even stated that they have been arrested and sent to Siberia. Frankly, we have no more knowledge of where these gentlemen are than do the writers for the Yiddish press who concocted these stories. Neither they, nor we, have been to the Soviet Union lately. Neither they, nor we, have had any word from the Soviet Union as to what these gentlemen are doing or where they are. Our memory, however, reminds us that hair-raising tales of this kind are by no means new. A number of years ago, we remember, Litvinov was purged and disappeared not once, but four or five times, in the foreword, that is. We also remember a fabricated story of a disappearance which turned out quite embarrassing to its creators in the Yiddish press. In fact, the feeling was left that the Yiddish press would have been happier, on the whole, if the object of its story had really disappeared and stayed that way. On August 29, 1945, the Jewish Morning Journal printed a cable from its correspondent in Jerusalem that Rabbi Dr. Mordecai Narok had been, quote-unquote, banished 
and was in, quote-unquote, dire need in Tashkent. Rabbi Narak was for many years the chief rabbi of Riga and a former member of the parliament in Latvia. As it turned out, but a short while later, in October 1945 to be exact, a cable came through from the Soviet Union with a New Year's greeting addressed to American Jewry by Dr. Narak. How seriously can one take the crocodile tears wept by the Woltmans and the foreword writers for Pfeffer and Bergelson and a host of other Soviet Jewish writers, when in the past, these same weepers have done nothing but heap scorn on those same writers. The Anti-Israel Canard Most contemptible of all is the present attempt to distort the role of the Soviet Union in the establishment of the State of Israel. Not only have the Woltmans and the Schwartzes of the Times tried to make the Soviet Union's opposition to Zionism appear as anti-Semitism, they have also tried to make it appear as though the Soviet Union were anti-Israel. This distortion is so dangerous that William Zuckerman, a well-known Jewish writer with whose views we frequently disagree, felt impelled to deliver a warning in the March 17th Jewish Review. Zuckerman wrote, quote, The attempt which is already being made to present these restrictions against Zionism as a new anti-Semitic movement by pro-communist countries is as untrue as it is dangerous. It must be made clear to every Jew and non-Jew that anti-Zionism does not mean anti-Semitism, nor does it even mean anti-Israelism. Communism does not single out Jews or a section of Jews as its special target. Those who are trying to utilize the charge to raise a hysteria about communistic anti-Semitism are not only confusing the issue, but are doing the cause of the Jews and of Israel an incalculable harm, end quote. It is difficult within the limits of a pamphlet to go into a lengthy analysis of the role of the Soviet Union in the long struggle both inside and outside of the United Nations with regard to the creation of the State of Israel. Briefly, it was the Soviet Union that frustrated the efforts of the American delegation to put across the trusteeship plan. It was because of the uncompromising fight of the Soviet Union that the Bernadotte plan was defeated. And, in those days, when Israel was fighting for its very life and the American government placed an embargo on arms, it was Czechoslovakia that sent the material aid without which it is hard to imagine that the heroic fighters of Israel could have won their battle. That the Jewish masses of Israel recognized the Soviet Union as a friend is attested to by the press in Israel. On August 8, 1948, the influential right-wing newspaper Habaker stated, quote, The words and deeds of the Soviet representatives in dark hours have deeply sunk into our memory. The firm and consistent support of Israel by the USSR at Lake Success has given the USSR and its statements a place of honor in the new history of Israel. End quote. Daver, organ of the Jewish Federation of Labor in Israel, wrote, quote, We'll never forget the friendship the USSR showed us in the worst hour 
when the state of Israel was established and was struggling for its existence. End quote. Soviet Prestige in Israel Perhaps most revealing of all of the sentiment of the Jews in Israel toward the Soviet Union is in a report by Kenneth Bilby in the New York Herald Tribune of August 5, 1948. Bilby wrote, quote, Russian prestige has soared enormously among all political factions. Through its consistent espousal of Israel's cause in the United Nations, the Soviet Union has established a goodwill reservoir with leftists, moderates, and right-wing elements. Perhaps of more importance to a new nation fighting for its existence has been a fact less generally known, that Russia provided practical help when practical help was needed. While the United States continued its arms embargo, Russia opened its military stores to Israel. From the Soviet satellite nation of Czechoslovakia, Jews made some of their most important and possibly their most sizable bulk purchases. Certain Czech arms shipments, which reached Israel during critical junctures of the war, played a vital role in blunting the invasion's five Arab armies. When Jewish troops marched in review down Tel Aviv's Allenby Street last week, new Czechoslovak rifles appeared on the shoulders of infantry soldiers. In the hodgepodge of weapons which the Jews have amassed, this rifle stands out as the basic weapon of the Israeli army. End quote. This, then, is the record of the Soviet Union in its fight for Israel, in its struggles against fascism, in its aid to the Jewish people. And can those who today seek to besmirch this record and spread all kinds of lies and filth about anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union equal in any shape or manner even the smallest part of this record? Let us take the American Jewish Committee, for example. Its former president and one of its most distinguished leaders, former Judge Proskauer, lays claim to being very deeply concerned with the fate of the Jewish people all over the world. He claims to be a staunch fighter for the cause of Israel. Such claims, however, did not prevent him from being attorney for Aramco, the leading oil combine in the Middle East, and one of the chief enemies of the State of Israel. Aramco is one of the groups closest to the State Department, which has consistently done everything in its power to frustrate the establishment of a free and independent Israel. By what shall we judge this distinguished Judge Proskauer? By his words or deeds? Dubious Jewish Defender The American Jewish Committee rushed into print with so-called documented studies and lost no time in feeding material to the press on the supposed fate of the Jews in Eastern Europe. But if the fate of the Jews concerns the committee so much, why did it not rush into a campaign when Ilse Koch was freed? Why has it made no fanfare or organized protests against the failure of the American government to denazify Germany? Why has it not led the Jewish masses in protest against the obvious rebuilding of a Nazi Germany, which constitutes one of the direst threats to the future of the Jewish people? Why is it so anxious to fight anti-Semitism 
where it doesn't exist, but so completely silent on the problem where it manifests itself in the most shocking forms. In England, for instance, where the Mosley movement has begun to assault the Jews openly on the streets. And what about the growing evidences of discrimination and anti-Semitism in our own country? When confronted with such facts, many people will shake their heads and argue that it is incredible. It is hard to believe that any Jew, regardless of his economic status, would do anything to harm the Jewish people. Yes, it is hard to believe. Yet history, both past and present, is filled with instances and examples of the betrayal of the Jewish people, of the misleadership of the Jewish people, and of the holding back of the people from struggle through demagogy, confusion, and even intimidation by bourgeois Jewish organizations and leaders. The so-called hush-hush policy of the American Jewish Committee and the Jewish Labor Committee with regard to the struggle against anti-Semitism. The notorious role of the American Jewish Committee in seeking to hold back the anti-Nazi boycott movement that had developed in the American Jewish community in the 30s are characteristic of the attempt to silence militant Jewish action, particularly when it began to ally itself with the progressive labor forces of America. They are indicative of the tendency of the top economic brackets to subordinate the interests of the Jewish people to their own narrow class and economic interests. And why not? These American Jewish Committee leaders have something to protect that's a little closer to home than the Jews of the world. It is impossible here to give a complete breakdown of the membership of this wide-flung committee, but an examination of the structure of a small part of its executive committee of 150 members as of 1944 is illuminating. Forty members of the 1944 executive committee were officers and or directors of business corporations. Three of those executive committee members were partners of Kuhn, Loeb, and company, and three were members of the New York Stock Exchange. Among the corporation executives are Jacob Blostein, an oil tycoon, Sam Luizone and Roger W. Strauss, mining magnates, Henry Idelson, investment executive, Harris Burlstein of Chicago, president of the Pabst Brewing Company. For a more complete listing, see Jewish Life for April 1948. This is the first in a series of four articles by Louis Harop in Jewish Life, April through July 1948, which shed an interesting light on the character of the American Jewish Committee. No doubt many honest people have been taken in, confused, and shocked by the hysterical campaign against the Soviet Union. But the leaders of the American Jewish Committee, or of the Jewish Labor Committee, are not among them. They know the record of the Soviet Union. Their files are full of facts and documents on what the Soviet Union has done for the Jewish people. These gentlemen know where to find the truth if they want it. No, 
These are no misinformed, misled souls. These are groups determined to distort the facts so as to mislead the Jewish masses. The purpose of this despicable campaign of calumny was expressed clearly in an article by George Fielding Elliott in the New York Post of April 6th, in which he said, quote, The blind and stupid support of the Soviet Union by many American Jews, who can see only that Russia voted for partition, must come to an end. End quote. This, then, is the purpose of this filthy campaign, to alienate the Jewish people from the Soviet Union, since they look to this land with gratitude for its consistent support of Israel and for its glorious record of struggle against anti-Semitism. Eliot and his pack may consider the Jews, quote, stupid and blind, end quote. He knows that it is necessary to arouse hatred to a hysterical pitch, since preparations are moving apace to plunge the world into war against the Soviet Union. Those who know that there is no cause for war other than the rapacious appetites of profit-mad imperialists who will stop at nothing, even if it means rebuilding fascism all over again, have to be deceived if they are to be won over to the war camp. To this end, no lie is too big, no slander too great, and, of all the lies, the one about anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union is one of the dirtiest and foulest ever spewed out by minds distorted by venom and hatred. Thank you for listening to this reading from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Support us at newoutlookpublishers.net, join us on Discord, follow us on Twitter, and visit peopleschool.org to sign up for free classes.